There is an ancient Arab fable that tells the story of two travelers. And as they journey, they come across a kind of a strange older man who starts giving them prophecies. And he tells them at the end of their destination, they will be both happy and sad. He said, you will cross a dry riverbed. Be sure that as you do, fill up your bags with as many stones as you can. Well, these two men went on their way thinking, well, that's kind of a strange story, strange man. But sure enough, as they were journeying, they did see that dry riverbed. And they thought, well, let's kind of just humor the man. It, it won't hurt uh, to see uh, if we just do some of what he asked. And, and picked a few stones and put them in the bags and went on their way. Forgotten about all this until at the end, when they got to the destination, they opened their bags and those stones that they picked up had turned into gold. And they were very happy and very sad because they did not pick up more stones. I think that in this story, the lesson that we learn in Genesis chapter 25 is one where we can be both happy and sad when we realize that at the end of our life, that what we had pursued may not have had lasting value. But those that we did pursue of eternal value, and we realize how precious they are, and we wish that we had spent more time investing in the eternal things that matter. In Genesis chapter 25, we have a story of one who trivialized treasure. It is a transition story between uh, that of Abraham and, and Jacob, with Isaac being the transition figure. There's not much said about him. In fact, Genesis 26 is the old entire chapter, the only entire chapter that's dedicated uh, to him. But you find in this passage that there is a foreshadowing of Jacob and Esau, who Jacob becomes a more prominent figure in the book of Genesis, uh, next to his grandfather, Abraham. It is not a story necessarily that I would picked out for this Sunday, as it is a very special Sunday, and that we are commissioning Wayne and Jennifer Husk and their son Logan. Uh, this is the last Sunday here with us. They will be leaving uh, right after this. Uh, literally, this is the last stop before they go to Richmond with the Missionary Learning Center there. We'll be there for six weeks with a couple weeks off before they head off in December to East Asia. So in many ways, this is the last time that they're here with us. And and uh, in fact, I had planned to use the next chapter, but uh, the Lord's providence, he uh, has me here in Genesis chapter 25. And I think that there are some very important things uh, that will apply to them as well to all of us, that they are not alone in being missionaries, that anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ is called to be the missionary of his gospel. And so consequently, there'll be many things that apply. Remember, as we study Genesis uh, and the characters of the Old Testament, these characters that we bring to light, they are not presented for you as models of morality. Abraham is not our model of morality. Isaac, Jacob, Esau, these are not our models of morality. Jesus is our model for morality. But in the Old Testament, as we look at these characters, they are mirrors of reality. And we'll find that God works in this, uh, these periods and these ages and history and we learn about God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And so the real character in this story is God and how he works. And so we're going to find three real purposes or three real aspects of the character of God as we look at this story and how they apply to our life and his working. And so if you will read with me, we're going to start with verse 19. We'll find that that phrase, this is the genealogy of Isaac, that that phrase, the genealogy of, it is the uh, key literary term to let us know in the book of Genesis that a new section has begun. In fact, this section will continue all the way through chapter 35, verse 29, when we find a new phrase, this is the genealogy. Remember, Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it literally means generations. And so keep that in mind. This is a new chapter, if you will, not though it's not numbered. Uh, according to the writer, this is a new chapter beginning with chapter 25, verse 19. And in honor of this passage, let's stand as we read this together as, as this being the word of God. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah's wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. Two men or people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red and all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's hill. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bore them. And the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field and was faint. And Esau said unto Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You may be seated. Just in a way of review, remember, as Abraham is getting near to death, he sends his servant out to find a wife from uh, their homeland. Uh, and this servant, being a wise man, sought some characteristics of that of, of service. Uh, and and with the find that he comes across Rebecca, who is very beautiful and indeed is a great servant. In fact, uh, according to the servant's prayer, waters, not only gives water to the servant, waters the ten camels. Uh, we found that this is quite an aerobic activity, uh, these being wells that you have to go downstairs. Very easily, two hours' worth of labor, intensive, carrying three gallons of waters up and down stairs. This lady was fit, this lady was a servant, this lady was beautiful, and she became Isaac's wife uh, through the work of the servant. We find that in this passage that Isaac was 40 years old at the time of their marriage. And we know a few things, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 
Genesis 17, all three chapters reiterate the same truth. God's promises are on Isaac, they're on Abraham, but especially through Isaac, that through this line would come the blessings that would go out to them. And indeed, through this line would be someone who would come that would be a blessing to all of the world. Anyone who blesses this line would be blessed. Anyone who curses this line will be cursed. So, can you imagine as Rebecca enters the family, Father Abraham sets her down. Isaac's there and says, look, Rebecca, you're new to our family. You need to know some things about our family. We're different. Nations are going to come from us. Kingdoms are going to come from us. In fact, God has chosen our line to be a blessing to all the nations. You imagine what Rebecca was thinking. Wow, we're going to have a lot of children. This is going to be a very busy time in our life. And so as, as Isaac and Rebecca get married and, you know, one year turns into two and to five and to ten, and you think, well, you know, they just enjoy being a couple. There's no children. But as it turns into 15, 20 years pass by. What must Rebecca be thinking? What must Isaac be thinking? You know, God, did you not tell us? I mean, you had a, a face-to-face encounter through a pre-incarnate form through Jesus Christ, sitting down with, uh, with Father Abraham, telling us these things would happen. We've got visions. We've got angels. We've got all kinds of messages telling us that there would be children coming from us. It's been 20 years. God, what are you waiting on? I mean, I'm sure Isaac and Rebecca are doing everything possible to make sure that they have children, and yet nothing's happening. What's the point? Well, I think we get to the point when we get to verse 21 and 22. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Evidently, God wanted to make sure that Isaac understood, that Rebekah understood, that this that would happen, the promises of God, would not be the work of man. That indeed, the circumstances would go into the point where Isaac would pray and plead, God, give us children. And it is through prayer that things come to bear, that God's promises are fulfilled. Now, that, isn't that strange? God said that there would be children. God prophesied there would be children. In fact, promised there would be children time and time again. But it wasn't until Isaac got on his knees in prayer that that indeed happened. What does that tell us about God? God's promises are wrought through prayer. Yes, he says these things will happen, but he waits on you to pray so that he can fulfill what he said would happen. Isn't that interesting how that, how that works? Yeah, you know, if you were to go into our kitchen, uh, you would say, well, you know, about most kitchens in America today, you'd see uh, your, your microwave. You, you go upstairs and uh, you'd see an uh, Internet, uh, Wi-Fi uh, capability, you think, well, great, I can get my laptop on, I can put some water in, I can microwave, and, and, and things are great. But things are not great in our house. Because our microwave's not working, our Wi-Fi's not working, the lights aren't working upstairs, none of the outlets are working in this one section upstairs. It's miserable. Have you ever wondered what it's like not having a microwave? Some of you remember good and well as in the 80s, but friends, it's like going back to the Stone Age. You know, it's tough. Here we are conditioned to it. And there's no microwave. No Wi-Fi internet. What's the problem? Is it what, you got electricity running your house? Yeah, we've got electricity around our house. I've checked it out. 
I felt it firsthand. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, that's working, you know. Uh, what's the problem? Well, the house is designed so that electricity runs through our house on circuits, through wirings. And there's a short in that one particular circuit. And electricity is not running through the microwave, to the Internet, to the uh, lights, the electrical sockets in this entire room. Electricity is available, the microwave is available, but they're not connecting. God's given you promises. You are available. Many things can be done through you and the promises God's given to you. But he has hardwired this universe, he's hardwired you, so that God's power is released through prayer. doesn't matter if it's available, is it connected? Are you on your knees Seeking God's blessing, asking God to work on his behalf through your life. It doesn't matter if all the power is available, it doesn't matter if God's promised to you, there must be prayer. As Wayne and Jennifer and Logan go out, they have great promises. In fact, they have the commands of God to go out. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, for no less, it says, go into this world, go and, and baptize and teach these things that Jesus has taught us and make disciples. And the, and the very presence of God has promised to go with you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In Acts 1, 8, again, we've got the power of God through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. And we have God's promises to be with us. And, and we know it is God's will for the people of East Asia to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in God's will to have the worshipers there in East Asia. It is in God's will for a movement to start of communities who will worship God. This is God's direction that does not excuse us from prayer. It is God's will, but it is ours to pray. Wayne, Jennifer, Logan, and all that you do, do not forget to pray. Church, it is not enough for them to pray. Do you realize that there's not many people, relatively speaking, who know about Wayne and Jennifer and where they're going and what they're doing? I don't know what their support base is, but I could probably say that Green Pines, we have a large portion of their support. When they send out information and emails, a good portion of those at this point will go to us. What does that mean? Is that just so we can be, oh, let me tell you about what's going on in East Asia and have this ability and this knowledge to know these things. We know these things and we are there in their lives so that expressly we will pray for them. It is ours to do. We cannot point to some other church and say, well, that church is going to take care of it. We are their sending church. In many ways, we're their home church. We are to pray. We think, well, nothing's going on over there. What's waiting Jennifer doing? Can they get things right? Friends, we need to ask ourselves, are we praying for them? Are we asking God to work in their life? God's promises are wrought through prayer. Well, prayers are answered. <laughs> Sometimes when prayers are answered, it's not like what we think. And here Rebecca's thinking, all right, I'm finally expecting children. But notice, verse 22, the children struggled together within her. That word struggle together, jostled, violent collision, slamming one another. <laughs> All right. This is the days before ultrasound. She probably doesn't know that there are twins. All she knows is, man, if I knew it was going to be like this, 
I would not have done it. This would not have happened. He said, if all is well, why am I like this? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. It, what's going on? It could very well, that the way it's phrased, inquire of the Lord, it, it seems to imply that usually they go to someone, to some prophet. It could have been that she'd gone to her husband, Isaac. It could have been that she's gone to Abraham, who is still alive at this point, to inquire of the Lord. And so God reveals something to her. Before ultrasound occurs, there's God. He knows what's going on inside. Verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. You've got twins. You just don't have twins. You've got two nations. And they're battling it out. And it's going on already within your womb. And then he make, God makes a revelation, a prophecy, contrary to the custom. The older is going to serve the younger. That's unusual. Most times, the older, the firstborn, will be the child of privilege. It will be the child of promise. It will be all the, the birthright, the inheritance will go, and they will lead their clan. But here, prophecy is given that the older shall serve the younger. And notice what happens as they're born. The first comes out red. He's hairy. Have like a hairy garment all over. In fact, uh, later on, we find out how hairy he is. When, when Jacob is trying to imitate Esau before their blind father, Isaac, he does so by putting on a goat skin, goat hair. <laughs> That's pretty hairy. I don't know many guys like that. Um, but in that day and time, this was actually a, uh, a rare thing or a privileged thing. Uh, you know, they, they thought, God, hairy child, this is a good thing. I sometimes wish back we were back in those days. Um, I'm certainly kind of partial to the, to the hairy guys. And so here he is. He's hairy. And he's got this name Esau. It's a, it's a play in words. The word, the Hebrew word for hairy sounds a lot like Esau. And so in English, if we were to do this, we might call him Harry. H-A-R-R-Y as a play in words. And so in the Hebrew, it's Esau. But then uh, we, he gets a nickname later on called Edom, which means red or sounds like red. And uh, he's got red colorings. We find later on he eats of a red stew. In fact, the land, the nation where they settle has red soil. And so we see a double play on the words in his names and in his nickname. Uh, and so he's born. And his brother comes out taking hold of Esau's hill. All right. Y'all know any twins? Last church we were at, there were twins everywhere. I don't know what something in the water. It was just like four sets of twins uh, all around it. And you could ask. Any one of them, uh, which one's the firstborn? And they knew exactly. Oh, I am born 60 seconds before this one. Two minutes. And he's like, well, yeah, it's two minutes. It's 60 seconds before a twin, it matters. And they never let the other one forget. And so you can imagine what's going on between Esau and Jacob. They, they got this rivalry going on. And they say, well, who's the oldest? Well, Esau, well, I'm not. And Jake said, no, no, no. My hand was out at the same time. Yours well, you know, it came out. And, and so they got this rivalry going on where Jacob's trying to uh, supplant or to go over Esau. In fact, his name, uh, Jacob, means the grabber of the hill, grabbing the hill, grasping a hill like you're tripping up somebody, like in, in a wrestling move. And it comes in a negative sense to mean a supplanter, a con artist, a deceiver. So it has a negative connotation that Jacob lives up to. Esau knows full and well. So here they're born. But notice what happens. Verse 27, the boys grew 
Esau becomes a man's man. He's an outdoor type of guy. He is a hunter. He loves working and hunting outside. Jacob is the kind of a, the well-groomed kind of homebody in the tent, likes to cook. Uh, and so you've got these two natures going on. Uh, and so consequently, Isaac and Rebecca do a, uh, incredible mistake in parenting and they start playing favorites. Isaac loves Esau. <laughs> Why? Well, he brings home the deer. He brings home the bacon, if you will. And and Isaac has a propensity toward the meat. And he likes it. And he says, man, he, Esau, you're just a great son. And he starts favoring him. While Rebecca starts favoring Jacob and starts loving him more and playing favorites with him. And so you've got these two who are pulling sides. But you remember the promises of God? God said that the older would serve the younger. But here Isaac, the father, the leader, likes Esau more. We're about to learn something here. That's this. God's purposes prevail despite people. God's purposes prevail despite people. What is the purpose of God in this passage? The purpose of God is that the older would serve the younger. In fact, Romans chapter 9 goes back and and uses this as an illustration of of predestination and election of God that it's not conditioned on anything about a person because God makes this choice and reveals this choice before anything comes known of this of these people. And so we, we it's used as a, a powerful illustration of God's purposes and election purposes and predestination. And the thing that we need to know is God does have a purpose and the purpose will prevail despite whether one likes it or not. Whether, uh, whether Isaac likes the idea or not, it doesn't matter. God will prevail. We'll see how he prevails in this story. Wayne and Jennifer, God's got purposes for you. In fact, we have learned this week as we've looked at the strike of the match, the, uh, the time, the emphasis on missions. Uh, in Revelation, there's a beautiful, powerful promise of chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. It's, it says this, God's purpose is this. After these things, I looked. Behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches of the hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What does it tell me? When I read Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, it is a prophecy of the people in which Wayne and Jennifer are going to. That people group, there will be people there who will be disciples and followers of Jesus Christ that at the end times, they too will be there in their white robes and they will be praising God and worshiping Jesus Christ, saying salvation belongs to our God. We've experienced these things. The God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. In other words... The people that Wayne and Jennifer are going to, God will call out from them his worshipers, his followers of Jesus Christ. But understand, it's not because of Wayne and Jennifer, any skills, any personality, abilities, their charismatic attitudes, or uh, their temperaments. It's not because of their training and, and, and the word of God. It's not going to be because of the training they're going to go through. It's not because they're Southern Baptists. It's not because of any of these things. It's only because of God's purposes. And in fact, there will be things that go on in Wayne and Jennifer's life and in the work around them that seems to go against God's working. But despite Wayne and Jennifer, despite Logan, despite the people they come across, despite the government officials who may try to stifle them, despite all these things, God's purposes will prevail. Let that be your strength. Let that be your directing hand. Let that be your anchor in your life. 
we'll find that God does his purposes as well in this life of Jacob and Esau. We come to verse 29. We learn something else. God's blessings, God's provisions can be forfeited. Though his purposes will prevail, there are blessings, there are provisions, there are things that God enables and allows us to have that we can forfeit because of our desires. There may be opportunities, provisions that God has in store for you, or there could have been provisions of the past that God made available to you that you forfeited because of your desires. Notice the story here in verse 29, and this is one that haunts me. Jacob Jacob's cooking a stew. Esau's out in the field. He's not catching anything. This is one of those days. He comes back tired and worn out. Before he ever sees Jacob, he smells what's going on. I went to the fair this past weekend. As soon as I say fair, you've already got something in your head, and it's probably not a ride. For those who are older, some food, and you can smell it already. You know, I went there, and I, I ate. I ate a good meal. As soon as you get there, you start getting hungry. What's the deal? It's like you never get satisfied because you're always smelling food. And here, here Esau is. He's hungry. It's been all day. He smells the lentil stew simmering. It may not do much for you, but evidently it does a good bit for Esau. He smells it going out there. He smells the campfire. He starts coming upon it and sees Jacob up there and he looks at that pot just bowling over and seeing the food in there. It's like, mm, man, I was hungry before, but now I'm really hungry. And so he says to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I'm weary. Jacob said, tell you what, sell me your birthright as of this day. He said, you know, look, I'm about to die. He really wasn't about to die. But you know, when you're hungry, you feel that way. I'm, I'm about to die. What is a birthright to me if I'm going to die? Jacob said, swear to me. At this day, solemn swear. So he swore and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, ate, drank, and rose, and went his way. And Moses writes his commentary. Very few, few commentary marks that we have. Thus... Esau despised his birthright. His birthright. You know, uh, back in, when I was in school and college, I didn't have a lot of money to, to eat at steak uh, restaurants and finished finish our last exams and a few of us were in it together and we decided, you know what, it's time to celebrate. Let's go to a steak restaurant. So we went to one of the few steak restaurants in town there and man, we were hungry. We were just... You know, anticipating steak had been a long time. And uh, it's one of these restaurants where they, they bring out the, the bucket of peanuts, you know. And uh, put that bucket of peanuts before us. Man, that bucket didn't have a chance. We drained the entire bucket. And it was great because you could throw the peanut shells on the floor, you know. There's a, all around us was a big pile of peanut shells. Not one peanut in that bucket. And they, they brought the steak out. It was juicy. It's cooked, medium, smelled good. You could touch it and just see how it softly dimple up. I got my knife into it, got into it. I was like, man, this looks great. I'm just not hungry. I could only eat three or four bites. 
And I'd sit there and watch that steak grow cold. Because I'd filled myself up with peanuts. Peanuts when I could have had steak. What you have here is a story where Esau fills his life with peanuts. And he had no idea what was there before him. There was a treasure right before him in the birthright, and he trivialized it. He said, sure, just give me a meal. Let me have lentil stew instead of a birthright. Now, what is a birthright? I mean, we, that's kind of lost us. We don't have birthrights anymore. But that day and time, birthright traditionally went to the firstborn son. It's, it's a special claim on the inheritance. And it's left by his father is a privilege of carrying on the family name. Uh, in his family, he had a, a spirit, special spiritual significance. He became as a, as a priest to that family. Uh, he was the one who would become the heir of the covenant of God. See, Esau didn't belong to just any family. This wasn't just any birthright of all the inheritance of his father, of being the leader of the clan. This, <coughs> this was the family that was special, that God had selected to say, in this family, would all the blessing, all the world would be blessed through this line. In fact, it's reiterated in Genesis chapter 26 to, to Isaac. He says, I will give all these countries. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham thy father. I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Isaiah, Genesis 26, verse 3 and 4. That was part of the birthright to say that you're going to be the one, the recipient of God's blessings. This was nonetheless of, of being a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. The son of of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, not Esau. Esau in that moment in time says, I don't care. Give me the lentil stew. Imagine this jar of beans here in front of you. <laughs> this jar of beans. Let me tell you that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you too have a birthright. There are things that God has promised to you to be inherited by you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me just share a few of them. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, referring to Jesus Christ, to them gave me the power, the authority to become the sons of God. Part of our birthright of being a follower of Jesus Christ, of proclaiming him Lord and King of our life, is that we are now children of him. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. As children of God, we have the, the opportunity, the birthright to see Jesus as he is and not just see him, but to pump, become like him. Our character changes, our heart changes. That's part of our birthright. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Again, a, a few verses down. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit 
of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Because I follow Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Lord and King, I'm a child of God. And as a child of God, I am a co-heir with Jesus Christ, a recipient of the inheritance of God, which means that in Christ, every spiritual blessing is made available to me. And as such, as a guarantee of that, the Spirit of God becomes part of our life to guarantee, to tell us that there's more blessings to come in the presence of God. And so I have the Spirit of God here with me. Not only do I have the Spirit of God, not only do I have all the spiritual blessings of Jesus Christ, not only am I heir, a co-heir with Jesus Christ, not only am I a child of God, 2 Corinthians 5.18, God places within and to my hands the ministry of reconciliation. Notice it says in this passage, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I've got the Spirit of God. I've got the title, Child of God. I've got the promise of every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ made available to me. I've got the future hope of, of being in the presence of God. And as a guarantee of that, I've got the Spirit of God sealing my heart. And God gives to me a ministry. And that's called the ministry of reconciliation. It says, I hereby call you ambassador. Go and tell others what God has done and how he has reconciled them to God. That's your job. That's our birthright. We've gotten that privilege. It is not a duty to share the gospel. It is a privilege as being a follower of Jesus Christ. To tell how God has made efforts to reconcile every man who is born broken because of being self-oriented instead of God-oriented. But God has made a way to cleanse them of their sin. They do not have to suffer the eternal condemnation of being self-centered. Hell. That's our ministry. That's our birthright. To become like him. Have the spirit of God in our life. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 12. Bring it all together for you. Hebrews chapter 12 gives a good explanation to this passage. It says in verse 14, Pursue peace with all people. Holiness. In other words, pursue holiness. Without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully. Lest in anyone fall short of the grace of God. It's not that God's grace fails us, but we fail God's grace. Lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. What does that mean? God has given a gift of Jesus Christ. In it, we can receive holiness. We can receive peace. The root of bitterness does not have to spring up in our life. It is the grace of God. Do not fail the grace of God. Do not count it as so much trash and consider your own desires, your own appetites more important than Jesus Christ and thus become a profane person. What does that mean, profane? You treated what was reverent, what was in awe, what was the treasure of heaven, and you treated it as just a side hobby 
because you had appetites that were more important. When we exchange our purity, our integrity, our family, or our relationship with God, or His church, we, the benefit we receive is nothing more than a pile of beans. Satan is constantly tempting us to forfeit the internal riches of our relationship with Jesus Christ for the pleasure of immediate gratification. An evening of watching ungodly programming on the TV, illicit affair, financial compromise to get ahead, lusting after money or material things, letting loose our anger and abandonment of reason, succumbing uh, to depression without check, cursing God in despair or disappointment. We are in constant danger of being tempted to give up something very precious in order to indulge a sudden, very strong desire. The pile of beans is as dangerous to you and to me as any temptation to gratifying the feelings of the immediate moment and in any way that shows that we despise the promises of the living God for our future. Whatever you do, make sure that your life is bent on accomplishing God's will, God's way. C.S. Lewis stated it this way. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, a right relationship with God, forgiveness, Salvation, the ministry of reconciliation, the holiness of God, peace in our heart. These things that God offers to you are stake. If you would just hold on and wait. Yes, the penis of this world are right in front of you. You can get them so easily, so quickly. Whatever your heart desires, the appetite. Isn't it interesting how Isaac, dictated by the appetites, stomach, favored Esau. Esau took a cue from his father and let his own physical appetite forfeit a birthright, a spiritual birthright that could have been his. Beware desires, fleshly appetites. These things may be good. But if they get to the point where you are putting aside and putting a lower priority a relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can fulfill your appetite, you just trivialized the greatest treasure this world will ever know. Beware. Lest you come to a point where there are no place, there is no place for repentance, though you cry. This is a serious warning. Those of you who have heard the things of Jesus Christ and you put them aside because you've got more important things to do in your life, things you want to do, you think that you can come to Christ at any moment in time. If you treat Christ as nothing, there may be a moment in time when God says, though you cry, there is no opportunity for repentance. This is a sobering message in my heart and my life. Wayne and Jennifer, it is for you as well. When we go through our life, we 
have a sacred thing, the call of God, to share the gospel, to be a minister of reconciliation. It is so easy to say, I'm going to put that off because I'm tired, I'm hungry, I've got some other physical desire. I'm going to put it off. It's going to be easy for you to clam up in a day and pretend like the world of East Asia doesn't exist. But that's the place God's called you. That's a reverent call. It's a holy call. Make sure it has the right priority. You don't forfeit. Don't forfeit the call of God for any temporary pleasure that may be offered to you. Jim Elliott, missionary, died in Ecuador. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We could say the opposite. He is a great fool who loses and gives up what will last for eternity to gain what will last for only a moment. I'm sure Esau felt good on his way home, but what about the next day? The next day. What do you live for? Don't settle for the peanuts of the world. God's got steak for.